0: With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. In
1: this episode of Auction Nonverba, we hear part two of my interview with Donald Robertson, a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, trainer, and author of the bestselling book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. He has been researching Stoicism and applying it in his work for over 20 years. He is also one of the founding members of the nonprofit organization, Modern Stoicism. In part one, we talked about Stoicism, the difference between Stoicism with the big and little S, and a little bit about Donald's journey that brought him here today. He also talks about why Stoicism is an effective part of psychotherapy. You can hear part one of episode 21 on Octonon Burba. In part two, Donald talks about stoicism and some pragmatic ways that you can apply its principles in your life. He also talks about some of the challenges that have shaped his career and thinking along the way. You can find out more about Donald on his website and get your copies of his incredible book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, at donaldrobertson.name. Here's the second part of my conversation with Donald Robertson.
2: I was wanting to ask you, because you talked about your father before losing him earlier, there are so many people that I know that are mentally resilient, emotionally Strong, but most of those people that I know have gone through some sort of hardship that forced them to elevate to that level. Could you tell us about an adversity that you went through in your life that, at the time, seemed like it was the the end, or you wanted really to just kind of give up? And all of a sudden, once you got through it, on the other side, you can see the gift and the opportunity that present it presented to you. Because at the time, it never feels like it when you're
3: going through it. Yeah. It's strange when you look back on life. I often reflect on on how different things were for me in the past. I feel like, you know, when I was a young guy before the internet and things like that, it, it feels like I lived in a, a different universe or like a different era looking back on it now, man, it's it's a different world. But there was a time when I was a young guy and I remember really just feeling that I had no future. And so I can understand when people are disillusioned today, you know, I worked with young offenders for a while. And it puzzles me when people can't sympathize with people that vandalize things or they get into crime or they they lash out and stuff. I can understand why they would do it. You know, they think the world is against them and there's no point in anything. And, you know, they're angry and they feel disrespected. And, you know, they don't value society because their experience of society has been grinding them down and, you know, taking things away from them. So, of course, they're going to rebel against that. It's hard for them to think clearly and see something positive. The world seems like a dark treacherous uh, place to them so I can completely I can empathize with that I think later in life there were times when I've had to start my life again from scratch a few times and I think that's a combination of bad luck bad planning and maybe a little bit of me that kind of wanted the adventure of uh, scrapping everything and starting again so I suppose when I, I immigrated to Canada uh, what was it, about seven years ago now, I think it was, and i had to, I ran into some difficulties doing that To cut a long story short. I was quite successful as a psychotherapist in the u k and I for various reasons, to my surprise, through some bad luck, I it turned out that i wasn 't able to get licensed to practice in Canada, so my career was short, oh, and wow. I thought I would you know i 'd invested quite a lot of money. And doing taking various steps to make sure that I'd be able to practice in Canada. Come on, story that fell through, right? I don't need to go into the details for your listeners, but sure. to my surprise, I discovered well, I'm not going to be able to practice like uh, in in Canada anymore. My career is going. Like I've spent most of my life building up this career. Um, I wrote books about it. I spoke at conferences. I trained other therapists. Now I can't practice anymore. I don't have a license. So I thought, I need to find something else to do. Like, and that was what kind of pushed me. I already had written some books, but it pushed me more into working online and social media, running online courses and you know, becoming more and more of a writer. And there was a little part of me, though, that relished the opportunity. The question I asked myself was whether I would want to, on my deathbed, look back over my life and think that I'd only done one thing. Would I want to only have one career? And uh, I felt that even if it was kind of risky to start again from scratch, there was also a part of me that saw it as an opportunity. Right? And I'd rather feel that I'd done several things or at least tried to do several things over the course of my life than just done one thing and, and become successful at it. People don't tell young people this. And maybe if you told them, it would kind of go in one ear and out the other. It just, maybe it sounds kind of trite. I think often the best advice in life actually sounds kind of banal you know like people's greatest strengths are their greatest weaknesses that sounds kind of trivial but you know maybe it's true but one of the main pieces of advice I would give to people is that when you are successful in life at your chosen career often it like once the novelty wears off you kind of think what next and it get once you're successful it gets not always but often it gets easier like you know because you've, you've clouded your way to the top You know, and now you're just kind of coasting and life gets kind of boring and you get kind of, you potentially get kind of lazy and stuff. So you you start to miss the challenge. Yeah. And sometimes people, young people find that hard to imagine because they're trying so hard to kind of claw their way. You know, potentially it reaches a point where you think, I kind of miss clawing my my way out of the pit was the good part. Like now it's just done it. You know, what do I do now? Just kind of like sitting here. So, you don't appreciate the things that are happening to you at the time, and some you don't appreciate life's challenges. you just want to get them over as quickly as possible. Like, but without those challenges, life is pretty dull. There used to be a TV series in the UK. called "Dead Earnest," and it was about this guy that died and gone to heaven, and I remember one of the things was he was kind of getting his orientation to life in heaven. And they said, "Well, there's a guy that you can get. He'll come round with a bag of soot and put the soot in your chimney to clog it up for you, just so that you can sweep it and get it clean again. Because life in heaven's really boring; like nothing ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> no adversity. <laughs> enough, guys, I'm
2: just letting you know.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. It reminds me of this anecdote. Epictetus, you know, the big Stoic mythological hero is Hercules. That might surprise some people." You know, we may be thinking of the Disney carton and stuff, but for the Stoics, Hercules was this kind of exemplar of wisdom and virtue. And for the cynics as well, he was a big iconic hero. Epictetus the, is the most famous Stoic teacher in Roman history. He's the most famous teacher of philosophy in the whole of Roman history, I would say. But Epictetus turns to his young students and says to them, you guys all kind of want to figure out ways to make your life easier, right? He said, but look at Hercules if Hercules had just lain in bed under the covers and done nothing, he said he wouldn't even be worthy of the name Hercules. You wouldn't admire him or consider him a hero. There's this basic, actually, this is a good point to get onto, right? The reason, the real underlying reason for this is that there's a kind of blind spot that we all have. There's a reason why throughout the centuries, over the course of thousands of years, people keep falling into the same mistakes over and over again. We're really good at evaluating other people's character and behaviour, but we find it really hard to get a perspective on our own, right? Aesop has a fable about that. He says everyone's born with two bags hanging around their neck, and in front of your neck you have this huge sack full of everybody else's flaws And you can see it right in front of you everywhere you go. He said, and then you've got this little bag hanging behind the back of your neck that you just can't kind of get an angle on, but everyone else can see it. And that contains all of your flaws, right? So we call this the double standard strategy in modern cognitive therapy. Socrates used to do this quite a bit. So he would ask people about the qualities that they admire in other people and get them to kind of reflect on that. And then he'd ask them, You know, how many of those qualities do you actually possess yourself? I think this is one way of understanding stoicism. Stoicism is about learning how to methodologically train yourself to become more like the sort of person that you admire. Not how to become happy, how to get peace of mind or any of those kind of things, but to become more like the sort of person that you could see in the mirror and think, I actually like that guy, respect that guy, kind of like self-pride, but genuinely proud of yourself, like grounded in some genuine admiration of the things that you've achieved. And that's precisely what uh, Epictetus is saying that Hercules would never have had if he'd just lain in bed all day. He said to his students, you know that you wouldn't care one jot for him if he hadn't done anything heroic and faced all these challenges the very thing that you admire about him requires facing monsters, getting out of his comfort zone. And yet you guys all want to avoid facing monsters like the plague. Why, like, you know, you do anything to kind of avoid any challenges in life. But if you want to become heroes in your own eyes, why like, you're going to have to go out there, why like, you know, get out of your comfort zone and face up to some challenges, take some risks. This is the thing, you know, we, we forget. Like, how can we ever admire ourselves? How can we ever take pride in ourselves if we don't face challenges? This is, in a sense, what the, the Stoics want to teach us.
2: It's so true. And the thing is, we all want to be stronger, but we don't want to have to do the work that's requisite to gain that strength. So we're only as strong as the adversity we've overcome. And again, we can be philosophical about somebody else's hardship, but when it's our own, we want to be exceptional, magically. And that's the beautiful thing about philosophy, especially Stoicism. It shows. Mm -hmm. Listen, you are not the exception. We are all part of this same endeavor, and if we want to learn more about ourselves, as you mentioned in the book, you know, if we want to be understood, we have to first seek to understand others Mm -hmm. and to have that empathy and that capacity, that presence. Because if we, uh, just like with the double standard, we cannot expect from someone else if we're not willing to do it. And before we were speaking earlier, we were talking about anger Mm -hmm. and how that can be the road to self improvement. Yet, so many people want to shut
3: it off entirely or avoid it this is a good example of another blind spot so in therapy we often say very simply sometimes clients will find it hard to put their feelings into words so one way we have of helping them is to say look you know let's say there are three main categories of negative emotion there's anger fear and sadness and most of your feelings are kind of some variation of those or some combination of them right those are the three big ones anger fear and sadness well People with fear and sadness, or aka anxiety and depression, tend to come to therapy. But people with anger don't usually self-refer for therapy. Sometimes someone with depression may come to therapy. It turns out they've got some anger on the side. But it's rare that someone would come to therapy mainly because they have an anger issue, unless their wife has sent them, or their husband has sent them, or they're in a school, or a prison, and the authorities have said, you've got an anger problem, buddy. you need to go and see the therapist. So it's usually at someone else's behest that angry people seek therapy because anger is an externalizing emotion. Like someone who's angry thinks that everyone else needs therapy. Well, <laughs> it's everyone else's <laughs> the fault. Same, yeah, you guys yeah, need the therapy, not me. In the
2: asylum. Yeah, <laughs> It's you guys, that like, me. I'm
3: fine. And so there's a huge obvious blind spot there. Like, you know, people who have anger aren't really typically seeking help for it. And everyone, there's this whole self-help industry out there, but very little of the self-help industry is focused on helping people to overcome anger. But I think that's a mistake because I think in many ways anger is actually the most urgent emotion to address because in some regards it causes the most societal and interpersonal harm, at least to domestic violence, it leads to riots in the street, You know, it's exacerbated by the internet, like by trolling and things on social media and flaming each other. The internet is like a big rage machine. It's it's virtually designed to fuel anger because of the very way that the interaction functions, right? And I think it's also like one of the easiest motions to work on that might surprise people, I would say that, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because it's most neglected. There's most opportunity to begin working on it in easy ways. But also because it's an emotion that's interpersonal. Like when people have very depressive beliefs or very anxious beliefs, they tend not to share them or, or bounce them off other people or get that much feedback on them. And that that's limiting. It makes it harder for them to get a, another perspective, to, to be objective about their depression or their anxiety because they keep it to themselves until they go and speak to a therapist. But anger tends to come out more. And for that reason, you know, like you'll see how other people respond to your anger and what they have to say about it. And that is the greatest strength and the greatest weakness. It's a problem because you might alienate other people. So it's a benefit because you're going to see how they respond and that might be a wake-up call. And if you learn to overcome it, you're going to start seeing how other people respond differently so you know one of the most powerful tools in any kind of training and i psychotherapy i I view from a skills training perspective it's about learning to change your behavior your patterns of thinking the the most powerful tool is feedback right so you can make all the changes you want but if you never test anything out and you don't get any kind of feedback you know it's hard for you to fine-tune things you don't really know whether you're succeeding or not or moving in the right direction it's a problem of how will i know when this is working People say, well, with anger, it's relatively easy to know when it's working, right? Because if you interact with people that normally get on your go and it doesn't turn into a huge argy-bargy, then you're making progress. And you know, other people will say, uh, "You know, listen, Marcus, I've noticed a difference in you these past few months. Like, so you'll get feedback. It's an interpersonal emotion. And so for these several reasons, I really think it's you know the opportunity that we're all missing. And if we just gently nudged more people to talk about anger, to think about it, and the many, many things that the the Stoics have to say about it, you know, we could not only get some easy wins in terms of self-improvement, but it would benefit society as a whole and also people's domestic relationships. I think also if people improve in one area of their life, one of the things we find is there's this phenomenon we sometimes call generalization of gain. So if somebody has multiple phobias, And they say they've got a phobia of dogs and cats and spiders and elevators. But if they overcome one of those phobias successfully, they really nail it. They're probably going to improve, at least to some extent, in the other areas as well, for a bunch of reasons I won't go into, but it tends to be to generalize. Well, if there is an area that people are overlooking and where they can easily get feedback, and where they haven't even begin, haven't even started to work. So there's a lot of opportunity for progress. Working on anger, quite possibly, could help people benefit more generally in terms of their depression and their anxiety or the other emotional problems that they have. Right? If you have multiple problems, as most people do, you have to pick somewhere to begin. Like so, you know, if you pick somewhere that's potentially easy to work on and that you've neglected in the past, you know, this is your royal road maybe to, to self-improvement for many people. So I think the Stoics knew that. They talk about anger. Seneca wrote a whole book on anger. Marcus Aurelius' uh, The Meditations, in some regards, is a book about anger. It's one of the main themes of the book. The opening sentence of The Meditations is that from my grandfather, Verus, I learned from his nobility of character and his freedom from anger. That's the beginning of The, the Meditations, that he learned freedom from anger his grandfather. And then throughout the meditations, he returns to the theme of anger many, many times. He tells us also that he struggled with anger. He mentions a couple of times that he was grateful that circumstances never led him to lose his temper and do something that he regretted as a young man because he was struggling to control his temper. So there's no surprise then that There are many references to strategies for coping with anger. So, you know, I think we should be taking that stuff out of the meditations, make it more accessible to people, kind of highlighting it more, especially young people who've got their lives ahead of them. Um, Society's gone in the opposite direction. You know, at the moment, the machinery of society seems to fuel anger and division. We need to do something to turn that around. Stoicism is the perfect thing to turn that around. It was one of the main projects undertaken by the ancient Stoics was to try and Produce a a remedy for anger. Absolutely.
2: And there are so many people that we have seen that have been offspring or children that were raised in an environment that may have been abusive or there may have been alcoholism or drug abuse or some sort of other abuse. And it seems like some people follow down that path because that's what the impression was. That's what their, their upbringing was. But other people, they pivot. And that is the indication that they don't want to do that. What is it that separates these two people? And is that... And specifically, is that something that they do with their own volition? Or how does that work?
3: I think you need another role model, even if it comes from, and you know what? It could come even from fiction. Like you need an example. You need a light at the end of the tunnel. You need hope, right? So the problem is if you are in a shitty situation and it, it's the only way forward that you can see is for it to get worse, right, then you experience hopelessness. And that's a real kind of spiral into despair, right? But if you can look around you and you can see somebody else that's maybe managed to rise above it, and it could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a teacher, but it doesn't even have to be, you know. It could be someone you read a book about. This is the power of books, right? They can introduce exemplars or role models from history or even from fiction. Hercules wasn't a real guy, Right, some of the ancient Greeks believed he might be, but like let's assume Hercules wasn't a real guy; he's a mythological hero. Still, like he could be used for inspiration because it allows people to think, yeah, maybe this just illustrates a different way of facing adversity. Maybe you don't have to like tear your eyes out like in anguish, like Oedipus uh, in the in the Greek tragedies. Yeah, where people the Stoics and uh, Socrates said, look, the Greek tragedies are full of examples of people handling misfortune really badly and uh, the stoic said listen if you think about it like all of these characters are actually the authors of their own misfortune so bad things happen to them um that really test them and they freak out like and make it much worse for themselves but a wise person socrates in plato's republic says you know like a wise person responding to these situations it wouldn't it would be a very boring story why? Like, because they would just be like meh whatever Like, and then the rest of the story wouldn't happen. Like, Oedipus accidentally sleeps with his own mother. He doesn't realise who she is. So he falls in love with this woman. He was abandoned as a child. And then he finds out that this woman actually is his mother. He goes crazy because of the spiritual contamination, like the the sin, the shame of it and stuff. But he could have, Seneca would have him think, well, you know, so what? It was an accident? Like, I didn't do it on purpose. Like, you know, it's kind of neither here nor there. So there would be no tragedy of Oedipus, like, if he just viewed it differently, if he viewed it as a, an indifferent, you know, like, this is this weird thing has happened, you know, what matters now, you know, is what I do next, how I respond to it, like, do I respond to it wisely, like, or do I just freak out completely about it? All of the Greek tragedies pretty much are about people freaking out over things. And so Socrates said, Look, a wise person responds very differently and in the Republic. Glaucon, Plato's brother, is speaking to him at the time, and he says, what do you mean, Socrates? And Socrates says, well, there are four things that a wise person would do differently when they're faced with misfortune, the opposite of the, the tragedies. Glaucon says, well, what are they? And Socrates says, well, number one, they remind themselves that there are many reversals of fortune in life, like we were talking about earlier. You know, so what seems like a complete disaster, it might turn out in the long run, you know, to be an opportunity. So you shouldn't jump the gun and jump to conclusions about it. You should kind of suspend judgment and say, I don't really know how this is going to turn out in the long run, especially as I may be able to turn it into a positive situation if I respond to it, you know, wisely and uh, appropriately. So, you know, we don't know how this is going to turn out in the long run. So we should uh, suspend judgment about it. Glucklin says, well, What was the second thing, Socrates? And Socrates says, Well, the wise person says to themselves, There's no point freaking out about this because that would be taking the existing misfortune or suffering or pain, making it even worse than it is already. Just kind of pouring petrol on the fire. Like if we freak out and we complain and we get upset, it's like we're adding another whole layer of suffering that's unnecessary. It was bad enough already. You know, and now, like, if we're freaking out and panicking, over we'll it, make it twice as bad. And Glaucon says, well, what's the the third thing Socrates? And Socrates says, well, the wise man tells himself that nothing is all important in the grand scheme of things because there's always a bigger story, like the view from above we call in stoicism. You know, any individual setback that you experience is always part of a longer life story. Like, it's always part of a bigger picture. And when we view it in that way, we think, oh, this might be, dark or bad but there's also spots of light and positive things that surround it going on in other parts of the world or in other areas of my life. It's just one small moment in a much longer story and so then we have a more complex, more balanced emotional reaction to it. No individual event is all important and we have to look at the bigger picture for that. And so, Clarke says, what was the fourth thing? Socrates, you said there were four things. And Socrates said, well the fourth thing is the most important thing actually. He said, uh, when we freak out and grieve excessively, complain excessively over misfortune, we prevent ourselves, he says, from doing the very thing that's most required in the face of a crisis. And Glaucon says, well, what's that? And Socrates says, it's to think clearly and rationally and solve the problem. Because if you're freaking out and panicking and complaining, ruminating, then, you know, anger temporary madness and so is grief. Like you can't think straight. And he says that the more serious the misfortune is, the more you need to clear your mind uh, because you can't problem solve, especially you can't problem solve complex social problems if you're angry or upset or freaking out. You need a clear head in order to to deal with a a crisis. And so those are the the four reasons Socrates said that a philosopher would never be the, the star of a tragedy. It makes
2: sense. I love all these examples <laughs> and it's so true. Emotions assassinate the truth and if we're able to keep our head within those capacities, it helps us the most. Yeah. Donald, I, I know that you have a, a time frame here, so I want to be respectful of that. I'd like to ask you one question that my listeners sent in yeah. and it's a uh, very modern, it's very current, and they asked if Marcus Aurelius who was a citizen of the United States right now, who would he have voted for?
3: Who would he have voted for? Oh man, that's a good question, actually, in the US election. I wouldn't like to say because I'd like to leave it open that people might have different views about it. Um I'll tell you one thing I'll say about that though. And I, I'm always a bit wary about commenting on US politics because I'm not American.
1: <laughs> but you can say whatever you want because you're not American. Nobody's gonna be mad at you. <laughs>
3: it's like a little bit outside of my <laughs> You would <went> think yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, like, doesn't quite pan out like that. You'd think I like, I'd get a free pass. I'll tell you what I would say. Maybe I can say this and remain reasonably bipartisan. There are more Republicans who are interested in stoicism than Democrats. There are Democrats in politics that are interested in stoicism. But there is, over the years, I've seen more interest from people on the Republican side. And Pat McGeehan, for example, wrote a book called Stoicism in the State House. There's obviously General Mattis there was, in Congress, a study group of Republicans that were reading stoic texts at one point. So I think, generally, loosely speaking, overall, so far, I think there's been more interest among the Republican side. Now, on the other hand, I would say maybe that's because the Republican Party is kind of divided and feels that it's lost touch with some of its previous values, and it strikes me that, that some Republicans don't like the shape that they see the party in at the moment, and they see stoicism as a way of returning to virtue ethic and, you know, a more principled approach to to politics that, you know, they're kind of craving a a return to something that they they believe that that was more part of uh, Republican politics in the past. And um, that's my, you know, that's as far as I think I can go in terms of <laughs> commenting uh, on, on US politics. But what I would say, I think the, the Stoics, Marcus would have a lot to say about um, the state of uh, American politics in general. And really, the big problem is the divisiveness and the anger. And let me put it this way. If people can't speak to their opponents rationally, then we're, we're really in trouble Right, and that's exactly—it's—it's it's almost inconceivable. Right? Who would ever have dreamt? I never dreamt as a young man that the US would get to the point where it becomes almost inconceivable for a Republican and a Democrat to sit down and have a rational conversation. Right? I mean, honestly, I'd maybe this is as an outsider. It seems to me I never see this anymore. Like uh, immediately, you know, things seem to escalate. I twenty thirty years ago, I would never have imagined that things would degenerate that badly. And so how can you have politics? What I want to say, in a sense, is you can't even have politics in the sense of a genuine, rational, philosophical debate about political values. Um, You're not even doing politics in the authentic, the genuine sense of the word. Why, you know, you're not caring for the polis, the state, if you can't talk rationally about things. And both sides are guilty about that. We might as well say they're equally guilty. Sometimes I, I watched a thing, actually, I do occasionally, I watch both Fox and CNN, and I'll, you know, just to remind myself how bad they are. Like, <laughs> but there was a thing on CNN, and they were complaining about someone who in the Trump administration had said something that just oh, sounded very scathing about Democrats and insulting towards them. Right. And I was like, I'm on board with it. Right. That's terrible. Like talking about people like that, like as if they're evil and they're the enemy and stuff like that's incredibly divisive. It just feels anger. It's really unhelpful. And then the host concluded by saying this is a cancer that's spreading these Republicans saying stuff like this. And I thought, well, now you're doing the very thing that you're complaining <laughs> about the other guy doing. How did you manage to get from, quite rightly, saying this kind of divisive rhetoric is a bad idea, to then using divisive rhetoric in response to it. <laughs> and that, that reinforced my idea that they're basically as bad as each other in that respect. Like, I thought the real deeper problem is nobody's able to sit down and have a reasonable conversation, and we need to fix that. Stoicism can help with that, you know? There needs to be a whole change in our frame of reference or perspective so that we can bypass the anger and learn to talk to other people as human beings, no no matter where they are on the political spectrum, there's way too much stereotyping, uh, stigmatizing, demonizing that, that's going on in politics at the moment. It's always been a thing, but at the moment, it, it's definitely worse than it was in the past.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that's why your, your graphic novel that you're working on is going to be
3: fantastic as a tool to help people see past all this and look from a higher view of that. Everyone's going to freak out when they see this graphic novel because for several reasons, like many reasons. So one of them is that a lot of people think we don't know anything about Marcus Aurelius. So there are people that read the meditations and assume we don't know anything about the guy, but we know lots of things about his life and there's way too much story. So they're going to be looking at it thinking, these are all things that he actually did that were not during his lifetime. And they'll think it's all made up. And the things that they're most likely to think are made up are uh, the things that are drawn directly from the Roman histories, by the way. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they say about that. And also the, during the plague, the Antonine Plague, I think they're going to be surprised how many of the things that happen foreshadow the current pandemic. I think that should be a wake-up call to people. You know, anyone that studied history will think pandemics, they're not all the same, but they have, all have similarities. Like, you know, it's not unusual for them to get worse in the winter. Like it's not unusual for people to riot. like typical things that happen throughout history. Like when uh, when a virus spreads, and these things happen during Marcus Aurelius. Right, it's two thousand years ago. We never learn anything, you know. We went into this one thinking, oh, like you know, it's... it's <laughs> I've never thought about the possibility <laughs> that there could be a pandemic for society might be tested by, might damage the economy and stuff like that. Why like, this happens throughout history, you know, like periodically when these things uh, happen. But the thing I wanted to come back to, talking about um, politics and relationship with other people, maybe this is a good place to end to say, The Meditations of Marx Aurelius is an unusual book for many reasons. And one of them is that in the first chapter, he says a lot about historical individuals in his life, which is great if you're a biographer. And then throughout the rest of it, he says very little about concrete historical events in his life. So in Meditations 2.1, you get to the end of book one, the start of the next book's the most widely quoted passage says every morning when you wake up, tell yourself that you'll meet troublesome, treacherous, meddling, deceitful people, and so on and so forth. And people read that and they think, who are these people? That sounds like my mother-in-law. Like that sounds like that guy that works across from me in the office. Like and we can all project ourselves into the things that he's saying because he leaves it artfully vague. Now, if you reverse that, you take the things he's saying, and you imagine that he's in Curnuntum in Austria, and he's surrounded by, along the Danube frontier, 140,000 legionaries, auxiliaries, Roman navy, everything, this huge war machine. He's surrounded by the people the Romans would call barbarians, also, of many different tribes, uh, his auxiliary units. Uh, would all be barbarians that be uh, recruited into the Roman army to fight alongside them. Um, he, the people in the provinces that he lived, in Pannonia and Austria, are Germanic descent. The foreign chiefs that he's dealing with, negotiating day in, day out, are strange, like uh, Germanic or Sarmatian uh, foreign people to him. And so when he's writing these things in the meditation, those are the people he's hanging out with and is surrounded by. And I tell you, I think it should strike people as odd that nowhere in the meditations... He mentions being a Roman citizen, I think, once. But he says a great deal about not being alienated from other people, seeing himself as part of a cosmic city, having natural affection towards other people and viewing them as his kin. But at no point does he say... Yeah, but I'm only talking about Roman citizens, obviously. He doesn't say that. He says, everybody. This is a guy who's surrounded by his enemies in the middle of a war that on and off raged for the best part of 13 or 14 years. And so he's talking about the people he's fighting, for sure. And yeah, so it's really, it's stunning if you put it in situ and imagine that the things he's saying are being said in the heart in the middle, right in the middle of this huge conflict and that the guy that he just spoke to five minutes ago was the chieftain of a Germanic tribe that had previously invaded and slaughtered an entire legion or something, right? He's not talking about somebody shortchanging him at the corner shop. He's talking about these huge world historic betrayals. He faced a civil war. You know, he's, uh, it's much more dramatic and it becomes more real in a way when you just imagine that the guy is writing this stuff in Carnuntum and that he's surrounded uh, by all of the stuff going on around him. And so then if he can do that, if Marcus Aurelius can train himself to view the Quadai and the Marcomani chieftains as his brothers and to view them as uh, co-citizens in the Cosmic City, then I would have thought it should be a walk in the park for Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. to do the same
2: thing. <laughs> you would think so. <laughs> so I think I'll leave. I'll leave you. would think so. Donald, thank you so much. Thank you for the time. You have given so much gold that people can apply in every aspect of their life. It's very specific, very pragmatic, especially in the time that we're going through. Mm-hmm. How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, go get multiple copies, listen to it. His voice is incredible. Get the regular books so and you can actually write down things within it. And then I cannot wait for not only the graphic novel, but there's a, another book you were talking about real quickly. I know that you've got to go. I'm
3: doing an ancient biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press. So we're going to this is going to be a tough one because I said I'd try and answer some of the difficult questions that people ask that aren't answered in the other biographies, like what was Marcus's attitude towards slavery and things like that? I think those questions are answerable, at least to some extent. So I'm going to have a crack at doing it in this new biography. I can't wait
2: to read it. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. I look forward to all your future projects. And you stay safe over there. Enjoy Athens while you're there. Is there anything to do in Athens?
3: Yeah, Athens. <laughs>
2: Is there anything uh, to look well <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm pretty busy. The thing is, during the pandemic, we were in quite a strict lockdown, but you can still walk up a hill and look at the Acropolis and things like right. that. So I'm very lucky to be here. Absolutely. <laughs> well, more fun time. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very Thank much. You. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to marcusareliusanderson.com and join his Okta non-verba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.